soon. And Lord, as we remember that, let us not just believe it in our heads, but Lord, as we take it in and understand what that means, Lord, I pray that you would help us to live life now in light of the fact that you are coming anytime. And as we believe that and know that, we know that there are people that need to know you, and I pray that we would look to them, that we would look to you to show yourself to the people around us and even to ourselves as we so desperately need you each and every moment. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity again to look at your word, that you have given us your words so that we can know you more. And I praise and thank you for that this morning. I pray you'd receive all the glory and honor and all the praise as we look to what you would have for us to know this morning. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, as many of you know, um, part of the responsibility that God has given me here at this church for the longest time, over five years now, which is a great blessing. I've been great, it's been great to be here five years. Seems like yesterday, and yet also seems like so much has happened. But uh, as we, over the years, I've been working with a lot of teenagers and college students. Many of you know that those are two of the ministries that I'm most heavily involved in throughout the years here. Uh, and that being said, I get to learn a lot of new language. Now you say, what do you mean? Well, see, I'm not going to the mission field and having to learn Spanish or having to learn... Uh, uh, Swahili, or I don't even know, just whatever you want to say. I don't have to learn those languages, but I do have to learn, I don't even know what you'd call it, I guess millennial speak, because uh, I get to work with teenagers and college students who come up with phrases all the time that I have no idea what they mean, and I have to go and ask exactly what we're talking about, uh, just to make sure that I'm keeping up. Now, sometimes I use the words, and I find myself saying things that Really, somebody my age should never say. I'm saying like slang terms that I don't even really understand, but I'm used to hearing them, so that's what I say. Um, and, and as I think about that language that I have to learn, I could give you a list of different words that have been said to me, and I look at them and say, what are you talking about? And then I get to learn. So uh, one of the most recent ones, and that's what I'm going to talk about tonight, and you see, or today, uh, you see that uh, in the bulletin notes, the, the title of this is GOAT, G-O-A-T. Now, some, some will understand this, some will not understand this, because the first time I heard somebody des- described as a goat, I thought it was an extremely insensitive insult, right? I do not want to be called a goat, right? I mean, if somebody came up to you and said, hey, I just want to let you know that you're the goat, you would think, thanks? No, not at all. Don't call me an animal. That's not right. Uh, but come to find out that goat, some people now are using uh, as an acronym, meaning greatest of all time. So actually, if somebody calls you a goat, actually it's an extreme compliment and not an extreme insult. But how would I ever know that except I had to have it explained to me? And so this morning, indeed, the title of today's sermon is The Greatest of All Time, Goat. And uh, I was going to, <laughs> I was going to title this Jesus is the Goat, but I knew that people would probably get offended pretty quickly not knowing what goat means. Um, but that's exactly what we're going to talk about tonight. And I don't say this in a disrespectful way or just saying, oh, I'm going to use something cool in order to, you know, in with the young people to, to communicate this theme. But when I just learned this a few weeks ago and somebody was talking about 
hey, you're my goat or something of this. And I said, no, actually, Jesus is my goat. And I was kind of joking, but then I realized, wait a minute, that should be true. Greatest of all time. So as we think about life and we think about what is the greatest of all time, many of us have opinions on what would be the greatest of all time. Let's take movies, for instance. Many of you would have a movie that comes to mind that you would say, this movie is the greatest of all time. And maybe that's something that's really a recent movie, or maybe, you know, you're looking at it and you're one of those those kind of geeks and you like Star Wars. I like Star Wars, by the way, so that's okay. So you think Star Wars, that series, is the greatest of all time. Some of you will go back even further and you'll go back to some older movies. We're thinking about Christmas time, and I know there's always this debate. What is the greatest Christmas movie of all time? And, and to me personally, and I know this is kind of what I, I mean, you're going to disagree, some of you. I think that one of the greatest Christmas movies, probably the greatest Christmas movie for me, is Home Alone. I love Home Alone. It, you know, it's just awesome, right? And I, every year I get to watch it, and every year I laugh till I cry. I don't understand. It's just the way it is. But for some of you, some of you would say it's a wonderful life. Some of you would say uh, any number of Christmas movies, and you say that is the greatest of all time. We also think about whether it's even a person, maybe a, maybe a sports legend. You know, who is the greatest basketball player of all time? Is it Michael Jordan or is it LeBron, LeBron James? I don't know, and I don't watch basketball, so I really don't know. Uh, but uh, there's other guys that we could talk about. Who is the greatest athlete or who is the greatest president of all time? Who is the greatest? You fill in the blank. It could be anything, and a lot of times we get in this debate, and a lot of us say, this is the greatest of all time, or this person was the greatest of all time in referring to a certain area of their life. But here's the thing. We can all have different opinions about who we feel is the greatest of all time or what we feel is the greatest of all time when it comes to those trivial things in life. But I would say this morning, this is the clear indication that we have from the book of Colossians, is there is no debate. There is no opinion here about who truly is the greatest of all time. There is no question. There is no difference of opinion that we can have as Christians. There is one person that is the greatest of all time, bar none. There is no way to argue against that. And of course we know that this is Jesus Christ, the greatest of all time, the greatest man who ever lived and ever will. And we know that Jesus is the greatest of all time. And today what we're going to do, as many of you know, we've been going through the book of Colossians, and last week we finished the book, we looked at Colossians chapter 4, and so you're wondering where we're going today. If we finish the book, then where else is there to go? Well, what I want to do this morning is I want to take the whole book of Colossians, And I want to look at it, and I want to summarize all of it. And here's the fear. Sometimes when we preach the Word, and sometimes when we read the Word, we can miss things because we get so interested in sections of Scripture that we forget context, that we forget the overall theme of a book. We can break down a book, and we can say, well, this is what this ten verses is about. And then we got to always go back, though, and remember that there is a greater context There's a greater context in all of Scripture, and there's a greater context in each book as we read it. And even in our personal time, as we read Bible verses, if if we just read a section but don't go far enough, we're going to miss out maybe what God really wants us to understand through some of these books that he's given us. And so this morning, what we're going to do is look at Colossians. And in just a second, I know this is going to be uncomfortable for some, but in just a second, I'm going to read through all of the book. 
And as we read through all of the book, I want you to listen. And then what we're going to do from there is I want to break down each chapter real quickly and show that there are four things uh, from each chapter. Each chapter has a different point, a different theme. But all four of those points all go go towards one theme and one theme only, and that is that Christ is superior over everything. In other words, that Jesus is the greatest of all time. And so if you join with me as we come to the book of Colossians and read along as we go, and then we'll look at these four chapters and see what we can understand about Christ truly being the greatest of all time. Starting in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Or this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and of His light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent." For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above, above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that which you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. 
For I want you to know how great of a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ." In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity uh, dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and all authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made not with hands, or made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Who raised him from the dead, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God." If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value to stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming." In these two you also walked when you were living in them. But now you must put all, all of them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your servants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision amongst my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and those in Laodicea and in the Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, to Nympha and the house, the church that is in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read to the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. I just want to draw out a few things. I know that was a long reading, but I think sometimes I said, like I said before, we, we can read parts and miss the whole. And so as we look at Colossians, I'm going to, I'm going to give four points that I think was so a one point per chapter. There's a lot more here. Uh, this is not going to be a comprehensive survey of the whole book. Uh, I don't have that much time. We could take hours to break down all the themes that we see, and we have, believe it or not, as we've preached week to week, as we've gone week to week. If you put that all together, it would be hours and hours of material. And so today I'm trying to just take all of that and put it into four neat categories. But as you know, anytime you try to categorize something, there's always things that don't fit in quite as neatly as you would hope. But there's lots of things that we can see throughout this book that come together to give us a clear picture of the theme which again is that Jesus is superior. That there is no one and nothing that can ever compare to Jesus Christ. 
So in chapter 1, I believe Paul is trying to get us to a place in which we know that Christ is superior. I believe in Colossians chapter 1 that we see Paul starting by making a case that we would know that Christ is superior. From the time he prays in Colossians chapter 1, here in the first few verses, it's important that he, we see that he is praying for, uh, for us and praying for the people he is writing to, that they would know the gospel, that they would know Jesus, that they would know him. We see in, chapter, in, in verse 9, for instance, it says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with what? The knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I believe Paul is so concerned with the Colossian church. Remember where the Colossian church was. They were in a place where there was lots of different belief systems all coming together, and all of them were saying, Look, you do, Christ is not enough. Christ is not all there is. There's so many more things that you need to add to your faith, whether that's rules, whether that's special spiritual practices, whether that's worshiping angels, whether that's being severe to your body and making sure that you beat yourself down. This is what the world is saying to the Colossian church, and they're saying, Christ isn't enough, you need more. And so Paul is praying for them that they would have knowledge and wisdom of Christ, that they would know who Christ is, that they would apply that knowledge to their lives, that Paul wants them to truly know who Christ is, and as they know who Christ is, they'll come to know that he is superior and therefore no longer will have any desire to add anything to their faith. Also in chapter 1, as part of this, as part of Paul's uh, argument, if you will, and like I said, there's a lot here, right? There's a ton here. But in verses 13 through 23... I believe we see Paul write out this defense of what we can know and how we can know that Jesus indeed is superior. And he says Christ's person shows his superiority. His person, who he is. The very identity of Christ shows us that indeed he is superior. He is the greatest of all time. There is nothing to be added. There is no one that is greater. And he says, look, this is how we can know that. There's three specific things he points to. Some would say four. You could say three or four here. I'm not going to read the whole passage because we just did. But he points out three things. First of all, he is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christ offers forgiveness. That is who he is. His death, his identity means that he is our Savior. He has died for our sins given us forgiveness, we have been redeemed if we've come to him in faith and asked him to save us. If he's not superior, then that's not something we can find any comfort in. If Christ is just one of many options, then we have lost the power of him being savior. He is the only one that saves. There is no other way to God. We know John fourteen six. he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus is superior. He is the Savior. Not only is he the Savior, as we go on and we continue to read in Colossians chapter 1, we then see that he is God himself, that he is the creator and the sustainer. We've looked at this. We looked at the fact that this passage tells us that all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is creator and sustainer. 
And so therefore, if he is not only the Savior, but he is also the creator, the sustainer. He has made this world and he is keeping this world running just the way that he wants it to run. He is sovereign and indeed what we see here is that he is God. This man who came to earth, it's God who came as man and we now know that he is man but yet he is 100% God and he is the greatest of all time because he is the creator, the sustainer, and the savior. Those are three things. So I would say there's probably four because the last one here, he is the reconciler. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm calling him, Ed says it is, the reconciler, okay? Jesus is not only the savior that has saved us from our sins, he is not only the creator, the sustainer, the one who is God himself, Jesus is also the reconciler. As you look here in this passage, you're going to see in chapter 1 and here in verse 19. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, once again pointing to his deity, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the restorer of a relationship with God that was broken back in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned and took that fruit they shouldn't have taken, there was a break in the relationship between man and God and there was a separation that must take place. And that separation would lead us all to a place of hell where we would be separated from him forever and we live as enemies to God. This world is in opposition to God and yet here's the thing. Jesus came to die. He came to rise again. He came to live that perfect life so that he could be the sacrifice for sins, so that he could be our savior and that he could also be the reconciler. The one who would bring the relationship with God back to where it needed to be. That even though sin has broken this relationship, that Christ is stronger and greater than sin, and therefore we can again have a relationship with God that will last forever. We can have eternal life with Jesus. We can have eternal life with God himself. And we see that Christ is the reconciler, that he has brought enemies to become friends, that he has brought peace by the blood of his cross. And we can have peace with God because of him. And so these three or four things that Paul mentions, he's the savior, he's the creator and sustainer, and he's the reconciler. These things point to the fact that Christ is more than just an ordinary man, that Christ is more than just a good man or a good leader or somebody who came and had good ideas, but Jesus is indeed superior. He is the greatest of all time. He is everything we need and more. He is everything. And so Paul, first of all, wants us and the readers in Colossae to know that Christ is superior. And that's how I would sum up chapter 1. Maybe you might look at it a little different, but I believe knowing that Christ is superior is where it starts. In chapter 2, we move on, and I think Paul is kind of saying the same thing, but in a little bit of a different twist. And Paul, I believe, in chapter 2 is trying to get the Colossians to understand and us to understand that not only do we need to know that Christ is superior, but we need to trust that Christ is superior. It's That it goes beyond just knowing and it creeps in from our head and, and what we know and it becomes part of who we are. It becomes part of our hearts. That we truly understand that Christ is superior and that we trust that he is superior. In, in chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, I want to point those out. And this is, he's, he's uh, 
He's asking for Laodicea. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to teach all the riches of full assurance and understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Here is the thing. In society, in Colossae, one of the specific things that was being attacked when it came to Christianity was that there was this way of knowing things that would, that would give you an opportunity to have all wisdom and all knowledge, and it was a society that pursued wisdom above all else. That whatever you can figure out in life, that is what is most important. And if you can be wise and you can know everything there is to know, that if you know all that, you are going to be complete. It was a society that said that education and knowledge was where it was at. That's what you needed. That's what you wanted. That was the only thing that could give you fulfillment. And what Paul is saying very simply is this. If you have Christ, you have all the knowledge and all the wisdom you need. If you know that Christ is superior, that is all you need. And therefore, you need to trust that that is all you need. All you need is Jesus. All you need to know is him. All we need to know is Christ. All we need to know is Christ, and this isn't just a mental assent, but it's also knowing that he gives us complete assurance, and that all knowledge and wisdom is found in him and him alone, that we can be assured that we are full, that we can be assured that we have everything we need, because in him is everything we need. And so then he goes on and says this, we all need to be fulfilled, all we need to be fulfilled is Christ. So yes, all we need to know is Christ, and all we need to be fulfilled is Christ, To find fulfillment, the only place we need to go is Christ. We don't need to go any further than that. In in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, uh, it says this, See that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority." Paul says, look, if you know Christ, he is all knowledge and all wisdom that you need. And if you know Christ, you are filled in him. That you have been filled in him. You are complete. There is nothing more you need to add. And Paul is again saying, you might know that Christ is superior, but you need to trust that he is superior. Because the way of trusting is going to show that you're going to trust Christ more than the other things in this world that say they're going to fulfill you more than pleasure, more than knowledge, more than anything else in the world that says this is where you'll find fulfillment. This is where you will become complete. And Paul says, no, the only way to find true completion, to find true fulfillment is in Jesus Christ because he is what fills us. He is who fills us. And then the last thing here in chapter 2 that I want to mention is that all we need to believe is Christ. All we need to know is Christ. We need to be fulfilled in Christ. And all we need to believe is is Christ. And I didn't know what word to use here for believe. But I want to say a few words about believing. And I know I've probably said that even from here before. Believing is more than just understanding. Believing is understanding and acting. It's just like any other thing in life. If we know something to be true, if we believe that something is true, it's going to change how we live. I may have used this before in this. I'm not sure I use this illustration a lot. But if I knew... If I believed, if I got a phone call right now that said, Ken, we just found out there's a bomb. I hate to use the word. There's a bomb here in this church, and it's set to go off in five minutes. I know, Tyler's laughing at me. So uh, it's, it's set to go off in five minutes. What would I do? 
Would I just continue to stand here and just wait and see if it happens? If I truly believed it? No. If I truly believed it, I'd be running, and I'd be telling all of you to start running too. We need to get out. There's a bomb in the building. Get out of here now, and we'd get up. And the people who didn't get up would be the ones who didn't believe that there really could be. Stop laughing at me. So... Um, this is not, okay, I understand. It's a weird analogy. I was just trying to think of something and I'm tired. I pulled an all-nighter. So here's the thing. If that's true though, the, the truth of that illustration, I believe is, is something we don't always understand. But if we truly believe something, it's going to change how we act. Because if we don't believe it, if we don't act on it, then we don't truly believe it. And so when we talk about believing in Christ, we need to believe that Christ is all we need and that will show up in the way we live. It'll show up in the way we think. It'll show up in the way we act in our lives. And here in, in verse 17 of chapter 2, it says this, These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What are the things that are a shadow of things to come? Well, he talks about festivals, new moons, Sabbaths. He's talking about religion. He's saying, look, Christ is so much greater. You need to believe in him. Don't believe that you need to follow man-made religion any longer. Man-made religion can't get you anywhere. That's not going to fulfill your life. Jesus alone will fill your life. Don't fall for the lie that we can somehow replace Christ with rituals or religion or with rules. Those things cannot bring us to Christ. Those things will not make us complete. We need to believe in Jesus and believe in him alone and not go with earthly religion but instead go with godly relationship and that's what he's saying here we believe in christ and we act on it which gets us to our next point as we go into chapter three and like i said there's so much more we could probably see here in chapter two but in chapter three that we just talked about that idea of believing that leads to acting i believe chapter three is where paul comes to the colossians where he comes to us and he says this that we need to live like christ is superior If we know that Christ is superior and we truly trust that Christ is superior, then that means we are going to live like Christ is superior. We live a life that is focused on Christ. Our life should be focused on Christ. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Christ becomes our life. We should be focused on him. If we truly know that Jesus is superior and we truly trust that Jesus is superior, then the only natural result of that will be that we will live like he is superior, that we understand that our focus is no longer on this earth, that our focus is no longer on what will fulfill me in this world. It's not focusing on pleasure or people or all these things that can get in the way and say, this is what I need to focus on. No, our only focus is Christ. That is what Paul wants us to understand, that our life will be focused on him, that we will focus on what's above, not what's on the earth, because Christ is our life that we live for eternity and not for this moment. That is what Paul wants for us. That is what God wants for us as we look at his word. Not only should our life be focused on Christ, the next part of this is that we must put off selfishness and put on our new life. We need to put off selfishness and put on our new life. 
Put off our old, put on our new. And remember we talked about this idea of clothes or a uniform, that you're getting rid of one and you're replacing it with another, and Christ becomes our identity. And so therefore we must put off selfishness and put on new life. Verses 5 through 10 speak to this. It starts off in verse 5, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Uh, And then in verse 10 uh, it says, or verse 9 actually says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That we put off the old way of selfish living that says all I care about is what's best for me, I'm looking out for number one, and really what we're saying in our old life, when we're talking about greatest of all time, in our old life what we're truly saying is I am the greatest of all time. That we live a life of selfishness. We live a life in which we feel that we are the superior one. And our new life now is looking at Christ as the true superior one. That we live for him. That we are being more and more like him. That we are being drawn into a, an image of Christ himself. That that is now our identity. So we need to put off the old selfish way of living and put on the way of living for Christ. Once again, if we truly know and trust that Christ is superior, then we will put off what once was and put on what we should. And finally, everything we do should be for Christ. Everything we do should be for Christ. Chapter 3, the verses 17 and 23, two of the most famous verses in Colossians. But in Colossians 3, 17 and then verse 23. In 17 we read this, And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then again, later on, we see the same idea that Paul brings out here, not only in the verse we just read, but also in verse 23. And in verse 23, this is what we read. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. These are two passages that tell us something extremely clear. You can't miss this. Everything we do should be for Christ. And when I say everything, when the Bible says everything, it means everything. It doesn't mean just the one or two times a week that you show up at church. Living for Christ affects every aspect of our life. And part of what Paul talks about in Colossians here, it affects our family, it affects our work life, it affects all of our relationships in life. That our relationships in every part of our life will be worked out for him, that we will do things in his name, for his glory, for what he would want us to do, not for what we want to do. And we took a whole sermon to kind of look at the idea of what are we truly focusing on? What are we truly living for? Are we living for our families? Are we living for our workplaces? Are we living for ourselves? What are we living for? Ultimately, if we truly know that Christ is superior, we truly trust that Christ is superior, then what we're going to be living for is Christ and Christ alone, and that touches every part of our life. Nothing is withheld. That is our calling. That is the expectation. Is that true of us? And that's a hard question to ask. Hard question to answer. So those are some things that we see so far, that we know that Christ is superior, we need to trust that Christ is superior, and we need to live like Christ is superior. Now we're going to look at chapter 4, and this is that we need to love like Christ is superior. 
We looked at this last week, so I won't spend a whole lot of time here in chapter 4. But we know as we look at this list of people that Paul is referring to, he is, list, he is listing these people, and these are people that he had, he had great relationships with, that he loved them. And we saw three things last week. That if Christ is truly superior, if we believe it, if we know it, we trust it, and we're living like it, then that means we will love one another, we will live life in community with others. That we will not try to live the Christian life alone. That we will make a priority of being with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we will make it a priority to be here at church, to be in small groups, to be having, taking every opportunity we can to be with one another because that is what God would have for us to do. And also we looked at we need to live life to disciple others. Not that we just get together with one another for our own purposes or for our own good, but that we get together with one another to build one another up in Christ. To lead others to be more and more and more like Jesus. And finally, we live to truly love others. So we live life in community, we live life to disciple, and then we live life to truly love others. Not this fake love that shows up that we say we love somebody but we don't really act on it. Not this fake love that we, uh, we grit and bear doing things with people and we're like, oh, I guess I have to do this so I will. But a true love that reaches out to our brothers and sisters in Christ and says, I love you deeply enough. And we looked at last week that that love that we have for one another, that that will be a witness to the world around us which Paul in chapter 4 also talks about that, our witness in the world around us. And see, our love doesn't just stop with these people you see. Our love continues even to those who don't know Christ. And that we walk in wisdom towards them and that through our love for one another, they will see Jesus. And so through our love, not only is it beneficial for us, but it also is beneficial for those on the outside looking in. And so we need to truly love others. That's what I believe chapter 4 really reflects. So chapter 1, we need to know that Christ is superior. Chapter 2, we need to trust that Christ is superior. Chapter 3, live like Christ is superior. And chapter 4, love like Christ is superior. I have four questions I want to ask. I know my time's getting short. But I have four questions I want to ask and one more passage to look at this morning. So please follow with me. Ask these questions to yourself as we consider the book of Colossians. The first question is this. Do you really believe... Do you really know that Jesus is superior? Do you really believe in Jesus? Do you really know who he is? Know that he is above all else? And have you given your life to him? Have you said to Jesus Christ, I know that you lived a perfect life so that you could pay the penalty for my sin when you died on the cross and then you rose again to offer me forgiveness and new life and I, I come, and I come to Christ and say, Jesus, please give me this new life. I realize, I acknowledge that you are superior and I give you my life. Have you done that? If you haven't, you are wasting your life. I'm just going to say it bluntly. You are living a life that is going to leave you completely and utterly helpless and hopeless come to christ and know that he is superior other questions to consider this morning are you finding your fulfillment in christ alone or are you trying to find it in other places with other people where are you truly trying to find fulfillment if you are struggling in life and you just don't know where you fit and you don't know how to find completion and you don't know how to find fulfillment it doesn't come in worldly success it comes in jesus christ alone Next question, are you living in a way that honors Christ's superiority? Are you living in a way that shows Christ to the world? Are you living in a way that says Christ is first, Christ is best? 
Or are you living in a way that people would have no idea who Christ is? Consider that. And finally, are you loving others in the light of Christ's superiority? If Christ is truly what is most important to you, if Christ is truly the greatest of all time in your heart and in your life, that'll not only mean that you live like it, it'll mean you love like it. And if you do not love, then you have that serious question to ask. And that is, is Christ truly superior if we're not loving one another? And that's a struggle we all have. So this is just a a PS, whatever that stands for. I want to go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, this is Jesus' words himself. And with this passage, I want to sum up everything we've looked at in Colossians. You know, Paul had a lot to say here. But as we look at Christ's own words, uh, we see that the same idea has been spoken by him time and time and time again. And in John 10, I'm going to confess, I'm, I'm stealing, all right? I'm stealing an idea that one of our elders, Bill Baker, came up with for a crew message that he just gave this last Wednesday. And... We looked at John chapter 10, and we looked at it in a way that I thought was super interesting. A way that maybe I hadn't thought about it before. I'm going to read 10 verses, 1 through 10 in chapter 10. I'm going to say two things, and then we'll be ready to conclude today. John 10, starting in verse 1. This is Jesus' words to us. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep, or enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I came that they can have life and have it abundantly. John 10.10. Many of you have probably memorized this verse. What is the abundant life? And I think in a lot of ways in Colossians, Paul is talking just about that. Where do we find our abundant life? Where do we find what really matters? Where do we find what gives us true fulfillment? You see, in this passage, we talk, Jesus is talking about sheep. And the idea here is that he is the door to the sheepfold. It's only through him that you can truly have a relationship, that you can truly be part of the, 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 the herd, or whatever you call it with sheep, uh, of flock. There we go, flock. I knew I was looking for a word. The flock of sheep. Same as herd, just different word. Flock of sheep. If we want to be in the flock of God, it's only through Jesus. He makes that abundantly clear. And then he says, but not only are they going to have salvation, I'm going to lead them to pasture. He is the good shepherd. He is the door. He is everything. You know, notice that. He calls himself the good shepherd. He also calls himself the door to the sheepfold. He is everything when it comes to the sheep. The sheep will follow. The sheep are in him. The sheep come through him. Everything is about the, the shepherd. It's all about Christ. And here's what I want to say. A sheep who wanders away, who thinks that he can find better things by wandering away from the fold, by wandering away from the shepherd, what happens to those sheep? 
Exactly. Somebody said it. They die. They wander away. They end up in a stream drowned. Or they end up falling off a cliff. Or they end up getting eaten by a wolf. Or they end up somewhere they shouldn't be and they starve. All different ways that they could die. And the thing is, the sheep needs the shepherd. The sheep needs the rest of the flock. And here what Jesus is saying is, come in through me. You can have everything you need and be have the abundant life through me. Have the abundant life in me. You see, Christ offers abundant life. Everything else is counterfeit. Everything else is thieves and robbers. Everything else that this world says you will find abundance in, whether it's success, whether it's money, whether it's relationships, whether it is just whatever, you name it. It could be anything. There is so much in this world that it says if you want to have the abundant life, if you want to have the good life, follow these things. Live this way. Love this, these people, whatever it might be. But Christ says the only abundant life is in him. And we see that the abundant life, if we understand this from Colossians and we look at chapter 10 here in John, the abundant life is Christ himself. That Christ is the one that offers all abundance. And here's what I want to say. Christ himself said, if you want an abundant life, find it in me. That's what Jesus says. And if we decide that we are going to look to anything else, if we are going to look to anything else in this world to find fulfillment, to find abundance, to find hope, to find peace, to find love, whatever it might be, anything else we look to is total, I hate to use this word, stupidity. I'm not calling you stupid, but I'm saying that think about it. If Christ is offering you everything you need and he says, come to me, and you look for it in any other way, you're a sheep that is destined to die. Listen to Jesus. He wants the abundant life for you. And no, that doesn't mean that your life's going to be happy. It doesn't mean that your life is going to be perfect. It doesn't mean there's never going to be an issue that you face. But what it means is he's there with you and he has given you everything you need to survive in the sense that you know him and you are looking to eternity and you have eternal life in him. Even in the hardest of times, Christ is the abundant life. Don't settle for counterfeits. Don't settle for substitutes. So as we come to the end of Colossians, we look at John chapter 10. We look at the whole of Scripture. Jesus is superior. We need to know that. We need to trust that. Jesus is superior. We need to live like it. And Jesus is superior. We need to love like it. Look for abundance in no one else other than Jesus Christ himself. That is our promise. That is our hope. That is our life. Christ is everything. And don't forget that. Don't ever forget what Colossians has to tell us. Don't ever forget that Christ is superior. And so let's live a life that reflects that of him. Are we going to sing or we're going to pray? We're going to to close in prayer because, you know, I'm getting good at this long sermon thing.